Our second scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. We're now in our third week in the Lord's Prayer. We're on the fifth petition. It's one that stops most of us when we get there. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's one that we know very well because it's a part of our daily need from God. It's a prayer, of course, for confession of our sin, admitting that we are sinful people, seeking forgiveness, and being assured that we are forgiven. It's also a prayer of love, right? forgiving offenders and actually in the midst of it praying for the power to do so when forgiving somebody is particularly hard. Now, the, the biggest challenge with this is what we're going to spend most of our time on. It's how do the two relate and how do we actually go about doing it? Jesus himself gives us his own little emphatic commentary after the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15 when he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that's a really hard thing to hear. And we wonder, how do we pull that apart? Does that mean that if I don't forgive others, that, that God's forgiveness of me through the cross is pulled away? And I don't think so. One of the things we do when we read any verse of Scripture is we read it in context of the rest of the verses. We read these verses in light of all of Matthew, 
and we read these verses in light of the whole Bible. And we read the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ crucified for us. And from that, we understand that we are saved by grace, as we said in our creed. Which means there there's needs to be a way to interpret this that fits in with a gospel of grace. And I think it does. What I would say is God's forgiveness is not contingent on our forgiving others. Rather, any unforgiveness reveals a lack of understanding how much God has forgiven us. It reveals a lack of authentic faith. Hermann Ritterboss, a Dutch theologian, put it this way, whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God's will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. In so doing, he shows he never had a part in it. In other words, forgiving others is a fruit of authentic saving faith and refusal to forgive, not wrestling with forgiving, refusal to forgive is the opposite. But let's get into the actual instances that we've probably dealt with. Who are those who have trespassed against us? If you live you've been trespassed against. If you have relationship with any humans, you have been offended and hurt and sinned against. When you're in relationship as friends, you find this in very simple ways. Sometimes it is a friend simply doesn't include you in something that they are doing. And maybe they even hide that they were doing it. You're cut out, ignored, and you're hurt. What do you do? I know not everyone in here is married, but marriage is one of the greatest places where trespass happens. Sometimes it is just a build-up, a tally of small trespasses. It starts with a lack of kindness, a quick jab, a verbal jab, a critique, a lack of communication, withheld intimacy, and then years later, there's growing and growing coldness. Sometimes those small things are things we just try to dismiss, try to ignore, But inside, anybody who's been married for a while knows that we tend to be record keepers. We all have a ledger, a a tally. We know the things that our spouse does that really frustrate us, the way that they hurt us, and we assume they're doing it on purpose again. One little paper cut won't kill you. Three million will. And many marriages go the way of three million paper cuts our relationships can do the same. But what about severe trespasses? Let's move beyond being hurt and offended, being excluded. What about horrible betrayal and infidelity or abuse and rape? Death because of somebody else's negligence or evil. That is present in this room, and I know it. How do you forgive in that instance? And as we enter in talking about this, I have to say, I have not experienced that sort of trespass. But I'm not pointing you to me, I'm pointing you to Jesus, who has. So let's enter into there, but let's also not dismiss how hard it is to forgive when you have dealt with horrible trespasses. I'm going to quote a bunch from Miroslav Volf, a Yale theologian's book from 2005 called Free of Charge. He was a Croatian-born theologian, and he writes about some of the travesties that happened in the early 90s in the Balkans. He recounts the story, a word-for-word story, of a woman who was a school teacher 
a Bosnian Muslim school teacher at a time when the Christians and Muslims, the different ethnicities blended back then, but then the war broke out. Here's what she wrote about her horrible trespass that she dealt with. She said, I am a teacher of literature. I was born in Ilias in Bosnia, and I almost died there. My student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. As the bearded hooligans stood around laughing, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. Then I don't know whether I first heard the yelling or felt the blows. My former colleague, somebody I worked with, a teacher of physics, was yelling at me like mad, yelling out my name, and he kept hitting me wherever he could. I've become insensitive to pain, but my soul, it hurts. I taught these kids to love and all the while, they made preparations to destroy everything that is not like them. Revenge, that is the only way. Are we supposed to forgive even then? What do we do with that sort of trespass? You know, speaking into it a few chapters later, Jesus gives us the parable of the unmerciful servant. But the way it's set up is Peter asks a question that was normal to ask of a rabbi back then. He would ask a question like this, hey, Jesus, he says in verse 21 and 22, how many times should we forgive somebody who offends us? Seven times? Rabbis in the first century were very good at trying to disseminate, oh, no, no, five times. No, no, 14 times. They would pick and argue how many times something like this was supposed to happen. Jesus' response is 77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7. Either way, all the commentators agree. The point Jesus is saying is unlimited times. You should not keep a tally of how many times you forgive. Unlimited, Peter. And then he goes on to tell a story of how you can do this. He said a certain king A certain king was going to settle accounts. This is in verse 23 and following. A certain king was going to settle accounts with his servants, and one of them owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 is actually the largest number that was expressible in ancient Greek. You actually couldn't express a number higher in ancient Greek than 10,000. And a talent was the largest currency in circulation in the first century. One talent equaled a half of a lifetime's wages for a a daily laborer. 10,000 talents was more money than would have been in circulation in the entire country. To put it in modern day terms, it's billions upon billions of dollars. It would have taken this man 5,000 lifetimes to pay it back. And the king says he's going to sell the man and his family into slavery. But the man begs, pleads, give me time, just give me some time, as if he's going to have 5,000 lifetimes. And the king has mercy, he has pity on him. He forgives the debt, he cancels the debt entirely, and sets the man free. The man then goes on in verse 28 through 30, he goes on and finds a fellow servant of his who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii was one day's wage, It would have taken a hundred days to to make the money, three months, three and a half months worth of salary, uh, basically a few thousand dollars today. 
And he begins to choke him. Give me my money that you owe me after his billions had been canceled. Give me my thousands. And the man pleads. He says the same thing that he had just said to the king. But instead of having mercy, he puts him in prison until he can pay, as if while he's in prison he can earn any money to pay him back. The king hears about this. The servants tell him, and then in verse 32 and 33, we get the king's response. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so he hands him over to the jailers. And actually that term jailer is also the same term as torturer in some translations. Hands him over to the torturers until he can pay back, which basically means for the rest of his life. You will not have mercy, neither will I. And unfortunately, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook because in verse 35, he says, in summarizing this whole thing, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we should probably figure out how to do this forgiving thing. So we'll look at a couple of things here. What gets in the way of us forgiving? How do we do it? What does it actually look like to forgive from the heart? And where can you possibly find the power to forgive when you've dealt with hurts and offenses? What keeps us from forgiving? Let me identify just a few, although there's probably many, many reasons why we don't forgive. One is pride. That's certainly an easy one when we're dealing with relationships of proximity, friendships, marriages, family relationships, pride. And it's because when somebody offends us, hurts us, trespasses against us, what we think instantly is, I'd never do that. There's a sense of superiority and righteousness. And so we may say, I forgive you verbally, because, oh, we're supposed to, we're Christians, but it's not really in our heart. We know that they did it, and therefore we are better than them. And in that sense, it's a way of keeping them down below us. We can also build off of that prideful notion of us being better than them if we have a religious or karmic view of life. If we assume that life is about how you are a better person than others, when somebody sins against us, we naturally feel like they don't deserve to be forgiven. Miroslav Volf, in his book, Free of Charge, puts it this way, if the bottom line of our lives is the principle that we should get what we deserve, Forgiveness will sit uncomfortably with us because to forgive is to give people more than they deserve. It is to release them from the debt they have incurred. And that's bound to mess up the books. But of course, what does the gospel say? The gospel tells us, as we read in the psalm, that God does not deal with us according to our iniquities. The gospel says we are saved by grace. None of us are good None of us are better. No one deserves salvation. Anyone can receive it. Pride gets in the way of us forgiving. So does fear, you know? When you've been hurt, we naturally, we, whenever we're hurt, we naturally have a defensive posture. That's my favorite one is the defensive silence. I'm really good at that. And it's a way of protecting myself. When I'm critiqued, 
when I don't like what somebody has to say, our defensive posture is a way of protecting us from further pain. We know if we go and forgive somebody who hurts us, then we have to engage the hurt, and we have to engage the person. And we're not quite sure that we're ready to do that. But the gospel, what does it say? It assures us that we are fully loved, fully loved by the only one that matters. And we are destined for heaven, and no one can take that away. We start from a place of peace and security, fully embraced by a loving Father, not from fear and anxiety of what might happen. Another thing that keeps us from forgiving is the desire for revenge. And you know, honestly, beneath the desire for revenge is a very natural and good thing. It's the seeking of justice. Each of us is inborn with a sense of justice, and that is because God has made us in his image. And that sense of justice and of what is right is a natural and good thing. The problem is that when we take justice into our own hands by not forgiving, usually we want to make the other person pay, some version of revenge. And whenever we take justice into our own hands, even on a small way, we usually exploit it for our own good. So we might think, okay, yeah, the, the phrase is an eye for an eye, but I say an eye for a skull. You take out my eye and I will crush your skull. We have a tendency to bend justice towards our benefit. So we have to be careful when we step down it. And we also know if justice was really applied every one of us would be executed. But in revenge, we will often hold back from forgiving somebody. Because if we hold back from forgiving somebody, we can keep labeling them. And while we might not be able to execute real justice, labeling them does that. We can see them as an offender and only as an offender. Plus, if we hold back our forgiveness, then we can keep hating them, despising them, and wanting bad things to happen to them, and that feels good. We want justice, and we want them to pay. And those are good things in a sense. But what does the gospel say? God didn't give us justice. He gave us his son, who took our judgment and offered us forgiveness. On top of that, we need to know that the Christian God is not just, not just a God of love and mercy. He is, and we emphasize that here again and again because we so easily forget that. God is a God of love and mercy, but he is also a holy judge. And we actually need a holy judge to relinquish our hands on revenge and vengeance. Again, Miroslav Volf, but this from his most influential work called Exclusion and Embrace, writes this, my thesis is that not seeking revenge requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your point to them is we should not retaliate? It takes the quiet of a suburb to think nonviolence and belief in a God who judges are opposed. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. You see, a God of justice 
who is the final judge, frees us from the need to take revenge into our own hands. Now, we may cry out, as David does, throughout the Psalms, crying out for God's justice. In Psalm 69, he gives us a couple of his cries of actual curse upon his enemies. He says, pour out your indignation upon them. Add to them punishment upon punishment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. You see, he is crying out in anguish for justice, but he is appealing to God and handing it over to him, saying, God, you are judge. In order to relinquish the need for revenge, we actually need a God who is judge, and we need to let him be the ultimate judge. So there are pride, fear, revenge, get in the way. There are many other things, but how do we actually do it? How do we actually forgive somebody from the heart? What does that actually look like? Well, as you go through the biblical record of what it's talking about, basically forgiving somebody is canceling the debt owed to us. That's what the king does with the servant, right? At first, he cancels the debt. But by doing so, we have to absorb the cost ourselves. When there is a trespass, in order for there to be forgiveness, there is always a payment. Baseballs and windows don't mix. If your kid's baseball goes through my window, somebody is going to pay. Either you will pay for that window to be fixed, or I'll forgive it. But by forgiving it, saying, oh, don't worry about it, what am I doing? I'm going to absorb the cost myself. Either I'm going to pay to get it fixed myself, or the window's going to stay broken and the air conditioning and the heat going in and out is going to be the cost that I incur. Either way, somebody pays. When we forgive, we not only cancel the debt, we absorb the cost, the pain, ourselves and we no longer hold it against them. We have a tendency to caricature one another, especially others when it comes to sins and trespasses, and, and we tend to do the opposite with ourselves. So let's take, for instance, lying, right? There's always a good reason why I might lie. I'm hiding something to protect you. I was just trying to be conscientious of everyone else. Well, you know, like I was, there's always a reason, and, and, it's a part of me. It was a, it was a mess up. I shouldn't have done it. But if you lie to me, you're a liar. You will always and only be a liar. That tends to label our trespassers, our offenders. But us, no. You see, when we forgive from the heart, we not only cancel the debt, we no longer hold it against them and we refuse to define them by their sin, marking them with that scarlet letter. Okay, but what about horrible evils? Some of the ones we talked about, that woman in Bosnia, the abuse that many of you have incurred in life experienced, the deaths that were tragic and at somebody else's hands. Do we just pretend like it never happened, wash over it? No. Forgiving does not preclude restraining evil or confronting injustices, but it does add a different motivator and goal when we do. Forgiveness does not say we don't restrain evil or confront injustices, but it changes our end goal. We want a reconciled relationship when we can. We want to restore that person to humanity and we want them to know salvation. 
as we do. And on top of that, we need to remember that when you actually forgive somebody, it's not just an internal in the head thing. As long as it's possible to deal with an actual person, it's not always, you're speaking to the offender and by speaking to them and offering to forgive them, what are you doing? You're actually bringing the offense to the front and condemning it as a sin, as a trespass, as a hurt. It's a part of the process of justice itself by simply naming it in the process of forgiving. And ultimately, with many of these very hard ones, forgiveness is not a one-time simple event that you need to work up to. Forgiveness is an ongoing struggle. Whether you have dealt with brutal evil and tragic pain, or simply the hurts of relationships all around you, forgiveness is an ongoing process. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman wrote in the book Bold Love, as any harm is more fully faced, any harm, regardless of the level of the offense, then it requires the deepening of forgiveness to overcome because to forgive another is always an ongoing process rather than a once and for all event. So in a sense, they're giving us that freedom to know that Forgiving doesn't mean it's going to be easy or that it's going to be one time or you're going to feel all better. It's a process of growing into extending love and mercy. It's deepening our love, widening our love, rather than protecting ourselves more. Unforgiveness does the opposite. It hardens us. In bitterness or fear, we become unwilling to trust, unwilling to be loved or to love. But in forgiveness, you step more and more into love. And in that sense, forgiveness is incredibly, incredibly powerful. You know, when you actually forgive somebody, even on a small way, it releases us from our prison of bitterness and fear and desire for revenge. Kenneth Bailey, a New Testament scholar, wrote this, through forgiveness, the bitterness, anger, hatred, and desire for revenge are drained. After the offer of forgiveness, the struggle for justice continues, but now there are things we will not do. Forgiving is powerful for us because it frees us, but it's also powerful for the person receiving it. It can reconcile a relationship, restore a person to God, and it can even be the first step in allowing a person to admit their own faults. Wolf tells the story of his friend Esther and how she stepped out first to forgive. Here's what he writes. Esther was abandoned by her alcoholic mother when she was only nine years old. The family never spoke about the mother and rarely heard from her. When Esther reached her mid-twenties, she decided she needed to see her mother again. Though she had been deeply hurt most of all, Esther felt very guilty that she hadn't done more for her mother, that she hadn't even wanted to contact her over the years. Finally, in the little Iowa town where she said goodbye to her mother 17 years earlier, Esther knocked on her mother's door. It was an emotional reunion and Esther could barely speak all afternoon as they walked around town meeting all the people who were important to Esther's mother. Then as they sat in the living room after dinner, Esther pulled herself together and took command of the conversation. 
she spoke briefly of the intervening years and then asked her mother to forgive her for not writing or calling. Esther confessed that she had made a promise to never love her mother. She told her mother how sorry she was and begged her mother's forgiveness for having neglected her mother for so long. Of course, of course I forgive you, Esther. They were both crying now, and there was a long silence. Esther was waiting for her mother to reciprocate. Surely, she would ask forgiveness for abandoning her, for all those alcoholic scenes, for the many broken promises, and Esther waited, but nothing came. Slowly, Esther got up from her chair and went to sit at her mother's feet. Taking her mother's hand, she said, Mommy, I was really hurt as a little girl. I was really, really sad. But I want you to know, Mom, that I forgive you. I know that you didn't mean to hurt me. I know that you loved me then and you still love me now, and I love you. I'm okay, my life has turned out okay, and I forgive you for everything. Oh, Esther, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Her mom kept repeating it over and over again, rocking back and forth with tears streaming down her face. With sudden insight, Esther had realized that her mother's shame and guilt were so overwhelming, far too ugly and too painful for her to face. She couldn't bring it out into the open on her own. She could not even conceive of being loved and forgiven by the child she had abandoned. But hearing that indeed her daughter loved and forgave her for what she could never forgive herself, she was able to repent. And finally, she was able to receive forgiveness herself. Forgiving has incredible power to release us and to release the offender. So that's how we do it, it's why we do it, but how do we have the power to do it when we don't want to? The cross. That's what Jesus was pointing to in his parable. The cross is the power. It's not just the model, it is the way and the power itself. The gospel tells us this, we are all sinners, every one of us, but Christ died for us. Jesus dealt with betrayal and offense. Judas and Peter and the disciples. He was falsely accused, shamed, beaten, tortured, and killed by Pilate and the priests and the soldiers. And as he hung dying, he said, Father, forgive them. And he says that to us, Father, forgive them. See, we owe a debt to God, the King, that 5,000 lifetimes cannot repay. But through Jesus' death on the cross, God absorbs the cost and cancels the debt. That's the gospel. Because of the cross, you and I are completely forgiven and fully loved. And here's the thing with the power to forgive. The more full our stomach, the easier to share the food at our table. The wealthier, the richer we are, the easier to forgive a debt that is owed to us. The more we realize the lavishness of God's grace and love towards us, the more we will have the power to forgive offenses, even the more painful ones.
in free of charge, one more quote from Miroslav Volf. He said, why do we forgive instead of giving in to vengeance or pursuing retribution? Which is what in many situations our violated bodies and humiliated souls scream after. Because in Christ, God overcame sin and reestablished communion with us by forgiving us. We do as God did. The gospel is not just the power of salvation, the power for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is also the power to live in love and forgiveness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. God, we come in here with our own burdens and sins and offenses that we need to confess to you and to one another. We come in here with so many hurts, past abuses and betrayals, and very present ones. We do not have the power to forgive on our own. Show us that your cross is enough, that your grace is sufficient, that what you have given us in Jesus is all we need. Amen.